Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And good morning. In the studio today is Annie and Kim. Hello, Kim. How are you? Good, good. I hope everyone's having a lovely morning. It is a beautiful weather, actually. In Melbourne, but we shouldn't be that specific because, of course, as the introduction says, you can listen to Solidarity Breakfast in the future and uh, it, maybe it won't be such lovely, glamorous weather as it is today. Uh, the um, Over the last week, we've uh, actually, you particularly, have been off to the uh, 2015 Marxist in Australian Conference, haven't you? Yes, I've been very busy this week, actually. Lots of left-wing events. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right, and we're going to cover some of them. And we were lucky enough to speak to three of the key speakers, and today we feature Amira Hass a pro-Palestinian Israeli journalist who's been living for 20 years in Ramallah. I found it a very impressive conversation. She's got a lovely voice as well. Yes, and just absolutely fascinating to speak to someone like that up close. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly right. And also gives more pers- uh, perspective. It gives you an idea that uh, actually Israeli uh, politics as well as in, uh, the Israeli population is much more complex than is generally uh, passed to us in the sort of two-dimensional cartoon-style conversations that we get on mainstream media. I think so too, and also the fact that Amira is really also a product of radical Jewish tradition. And that's uh, right. Yeah, it's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And uh, later on uh, at uh, eight, we're going to, of course, uh, have Marcus Harrington's rank and file. His wonderful. Uh, dip into uh, the working class struggles of uh, Australia as they are happening at the moment. And at 8.20, Kevin Keeley's This Is The Week That Was. What would a more just Australia look like? This is the question being asked by Overland's Fair Australia Prize. Sponsored by the National Union of Workers, entries can be poems, short stories, essays or a piece of art, and there is a $5,000 prize for each of those four categories. Maybe you'll be inspired to pen a poem about what a fairer system of taxation would look like, or create a sculpture expressing a country with no carbon footprint. Entries close April the 19th, and all winners will be published in Overland. For more information, check out overland.org.au. Share your ideas about what a more just Australia would look like. Overland is a 3CR supporter. When you wake up on the sea, be 
So you get out your pens. Fantastic. <laughs> modern, modern technology, of course. You'll all be tapping away on your uh, P- uh, PCs and uh, apples. Apples. If you're a writer, it's an apple, apparently. I might know it's, we shouldn't do advertisements, but one of my, my daughters, she went off and bought herself an apple because it works, she says. Oh, that's why I had to buy an apple, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> that's a terrible thing to say, um, especially since they're twice the price. But anyway, before we get on to the uh, guts of the program, uh, first uh, we've got a little bit of local news, and that was about the uh, thousands of people that gathered at Flinders Street last night calling for the stop of forced removal of Aboriginal communities in remote Western Australia. And you were there, Kim. Yes, it was It was just fantastic. I th- and they managed to shut down the city for so long and we're completely brazen and courageous about it as well. And we're like, yeah, we're going to shut down the, you know, CBD until, well, you know, they're kicking our communities out. But I think that there were at least 5,000, I would say at least 5,000 people there. And I ran into quite a lot of people from 3CR. I ran into Marcus and had a wonderful chat with him. Um, also, Amira Hass was at the rally. Fantastic. Taking pictures, being a journalist. Yeah, fantastic. Absolutely great. Uh, and uh, can you tell us about some of the speakers? Were they uh, in the previous rally, which also, which was a couple about a couple of weeks ago, there was also, um, or maybe, well, it was actually probably only a week ago, but it feels like an awful lot of time has passed because so many different things have happened in terms of uh, left voice, vocalisation of dissent over the last week. But uh, the last um, rally, uh, which was actually a live cross on 3CR at the Sewer Show on that Friday, there were a lot of impassioned speeches. The uh, mic was put around to different people who had a lot of things to say. Was that the same as that last night? Yeah, yeah. And also I think there were... It was difficult because it was so big and we were crowded into um, just in front of Flinders Street Station because we marched all the way around the city and then back again and then had Making speeches. Lots of noise. Yes, and had speeches for ages. So I could hear lots and lots of cheering, but I couldn't actually get close enough to hear what people were saying. Oh, fantastic. But okay. that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good thing. And uh, did, uh, uh, so uh, what was the police response? There were a lot of. There were a lot of police there. Were there horses? Yes, and you had the normal thing where, of course, they poo everywhere, which is a ma- major hazard <laughs> for any <laughs> activist. Uh, but they just kept kind of building up, but they uh, didn't end up, um, as far as I know, they didn't end up attacking anyone. No, 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 no. They've uh, they seem to be uh, practicing um, ca- ca- crowd control, and. Uh, which is different from the critical response people. Whenever the pyjama men turn up, you know you're in trouble. Yes. <laughs> and there's just another little bit of news I wanted to uh, bring up, uh, which, I mean, of course, that's just going to be a building campaign, basically, and it's being pushed uh, by uh, the uh, Warriors Against Racism and, uh, of course, key uh, players uh, uh, in the, um, what is it? It's... Uh, FNL, no, uh, First First Nations Liberation. I'm getting my letters in order. <laughs> um, I'm sick of the letters. Uh, I, I think, you know, eventually what's going to happen is we're going to have a whole paddock of all the alphabet letters. 
you know, vying for Alpha attention. Alphabet soup. Alphabet soup. But anyway, before we go on, there's another thing I wanted to mention, which was uh, the uh, government uh, has decided that uh, being constantly harassed by uh, the Greens movements, different environmental groups, especially, I think, uh, uh, Lock the Gate, stuff like that, is, is really having a dent, uh, playing a placing a dent in the government's federal government's uh, plans to basically turn Australia into a great big mine, basically, I think, and uh, the destruction of the in the uh, the environment is obviously making its way even to the farmers, etc. When the farmers and the Aboriginal people are actually collaborating with each other, then I guess the government should be looking at its own policies. But it's decided that what it's going to do is uh, uh, institute an investigation into Greens groups like uh, Friends of the Earth to investigate their uh, eligibility for uh, tax-free status which is fascinating. It's it's kind of reminiscent of uh, the Americans uh, getting rid of their gangsters, in inverted commas, by um, uh, charging them with tax fraud, right, because they couldn't get them for murder. But uh, so they've obviously decided, the Australian government's decided that it's going to, they're going to go the uh, bureaucratic method of trying to limit the uh, effectiveness of uh, Greens groups uh, and they've tagged it as saying that uh, it's all about jobs. So here are green groups getting, uh, environmental groups getting tax-free status and they're endangering jobs. It's absolute rubbish. It's like when they know that there's all these huge companies that are avoiding tax. There's that as well. But I think that you could make a case for charging the government with environmental vandalism. I think so too. I think, in fact, maybe that's where it will go. But the the positive side of this, of course, is that it means that the environmental groups like Friends of the Earth are actually having an effect. The government doesn't do this unless you're actually having an effect. Okay. And so uh, the other thing that was interesting was that the in- Institute of Public Affairs, which is the lobby group that uh, most influences, I'd say, most influences the federal government's policies. It's a lobby group, believe it or not, a think tank. They helped set up the Liberal government initially. <laughs> That's exactly right. And uh, there's a whole range of things that, uh, in fact, they're worth an investigation in themselves. So we might actually follow that up. Kim. Well, they also have tax-free status, apparently, and um, because they're a not-for-profit organisation. Charity for the rich. Yeah, but uh, they're not going to be investigated, which is, you know, pretty bloody interesting, if you ask me. And you're with Annie and Kim yes, on Solidarity Breakfast on this fine Saturday morning and whenever else you might be actually listening to it. 
Uh, we're going to move on to our uh, conversation with Amira Haas, that extraordinary person who is a poster girl for um, journalism. And uh, she has something to say about uh, journalism, which uh, may be of great interest to all of our listeners. Amira Haas, I'm a journalist with the Israeli paper Haaretz, and I live in the occupied Palestinian territory. I live now in the city of Ramallah, and I've been living among Palestinians for the past 20, 22 years. Yeah. I was wondering what drove you to the Palestinian cause? Um, I grew up in a leftist family, so I've always been... Uh, it was always present. The injustice towards the Palestinians was always present. And just it happened that I was lucky enough to co- be able to combine work and ideology. And I um, started working in the paper, in the Israeli paper Haaretz, as a copy editor. At the same time, I was active in the Israeli left wing. It was during the first intifada. I, I was a volunteer with the workers' rights group, which mainly concentrated on the rights of Palestinians, uh, Palestinian workers. And that's how I got to know more about, uh, to, to get to know Palestinians, Palestinian workers, trade unionists. And I uh, started writing for Haaret. So it evolved from, without much planning, but it evolved naturally. A lot of people would be quite unaware of uh, the Israeli left. Can you uh, give us a bit of an understanding of uh, the Israeli left and its position within that context? Uh, It is a very small left wing. It's... uh, uh, mis- people, many people make the mistakes and the, the deliberate mistake and call the Labour Party left. It is not a leftist party. It is, it, it is one of the parties that really uh, uh, mastered the whole process of colonization and, and dispossession of Palestinians. So even if they had some socialist ideas for, for nationalist purposes, it's very difficult to call them left-wing. There are some people who are more who understand now that these these things, these these this, uh, characteristics of, of colonialism have to be fought against, but they are not the main uh, voices within the labor movement, the labor party. So that's why. So when I say left wing, I mean mostly uh, uh, people and activists around the Communist Party, and uh, some some some. Uh, Groups that are not necessarily affiliated now with the Communist Party of leftists, non-Zionist or anti-Zionist left-wing. There is a party which is Zionist, but but uh, is in favor of the uh, two-state solution and uh, uh, called Meretz. But uh, they are it's more liberal than leftist. Uh, but the real left. Um, navigates between anarchists to communists and Trotskyists, of course. Some are associated, some are not associated. The Communist Party itself has a um, front with groups and personalities, mostly from the Arab, uh, Israeli Arab or Palestinians who are Israeli citizens. Um, it's a very small left wing, of course, but I feel that in the past years, you could say that in the, since the Second Intifada, uh, there are more, there are many initiatives of activities, uh, both uh, 
against the Israeli occupation and for rights and 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 uh, against capitalism and neoliberalism and uh, inside Israel proper. Uh, very innovative, very um, creative, I would say. Not many activists. A lot is run by women, of course, as in many other places. I just had a question about, I know that your parents had an effect on you. I was wondering if you could tell us um, the politics of your parents specifically. My parents, uh, I don't know if to say politics, but their uh, um, personality and, and, and uh, history, they were both... Holocaust survivors, and they never, were never, never they ne- were never Zionists. They came to Palestine, Israel, as refugees after the establishment of the State of Israel, because in their respective countries, when they returned, they thought that they would be, uh, uh, you know, build build a new country, new Romania, new Yugoslavia, together with the Communist Party. They were communists. Uh, so they hoped to build it together with the society that they saw as their own, but they were actually not accepted, not welcomed by this society. And this is one of the features that people um, underestimate when they analyze the establishment of the state of Israel, that many people who, many survivors, uh, realized that they were not welcomed in their respective countries in Europe after they came back from concentration camps or ghettos. And it is true about East Europe and West Europe as well. So my parents both came as refugees to, to sort of refugees, but to the only country that they felt, okay, accepted them. And they had illusions, of course, that there would be a revolution, socialist revolution within five years. But I grew up into this family. I grew up, luckily, after, uh, after the discoveries of the 20th conference in, uh, in the Soviet Union. So I didn't grow up in... A, very Stalinist uh, mood, maybe some leftovers which made us fight always. But um, but still in the Israeli context, they were dissidents. I mean, uh, it was clear that communists were dissidents when, in, about when it comes to the Palestinian. So this combination of, of having lived uh, in a family of survivors where one spoke about the Holocaust and, or, or about the Nazi regime, and uh, my father was always arrested for demonstrations and uh, strikes that he organized of workers. So it was natural. It was we were always a pariah in the Israeli society, and it was pariah, pariah. We were a pariah in the Israeli society. So it was uh, normal. This was a normal uh, reality that uh, I grew into. I was wondering. What are the main day-to-day struggles of the Palestinians that you live with? Um, there are the struggles against uh, forced evictions, uh, similar to what I hear is happening here. But I must say that in our case it gets more attention uh, or international attention. So there are struggles against eviction and against the growing theft of land within they occupied 67 occupied territory. There are similar struggles within Israel proper, mostly of Bedouins. There are the struggle for um, economical equality within uh, within Israel of Palestinian citizens, well, citizens of Israel, against racist uh, racist attitudes, race, racist legislation. Um, 
thing that I, I follow, not as a writer, not as a journalist, but as friend of people and as a citizen. Uh, there are struggles for freedom of movement that I'm very much involved with because I, I, I'm, I can say that for the past 23 or 24 years, I've seen how Israel, how there is a growing legislation against Palestinian freedom of movement. And I feel that I've not, I noticed it before the Palestinians did because they thought it was temporary and I could see that it was uh, one of Israeli main, main tools of repression. Um, as a whole, I would say that there is the fight of, against the Bantustanization of Palestinian society that I follow in my writing. Uh, there's been a lot of um, discussion around how Israel has become more and more uh, economically connected to uh, its militarization and exporting its military expertise. Yeah. Uh, and connected to that is creating the uh, sense of danger, continuous danger. Can you talk about that? Yes, when actually when we ask ourselves how come Israel did not use this golden opportunity in the beginning of the 90s and had a real peace, uh, peace agreement with the Palestinians based on the two-state solution, this is one of the main explanations because there is a very important strata of Israeli society felt it, it didn't pay off. Uh, this important strata of Israeli society is closely connected to the continuation of occupation because the occupation and the, 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 the permanent need to contain a rebellious population is the laboratory for Israeli weapons and Israeli uh, 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 security expertise and military expertise and intelligence expertise, which is being sold all over the world. We know that the ties that Israel has with the United States are not ties of a, it's not a favor when America pays money to Israel. It is a, a, a very, very tight uh, security uh, contacts and security connections between the two that maybe we're not even aware of how big it is and how sophisticated it is. Um, so, yes, we see that in the past uh, 30, 40 years, this, this, this Israel has become a major exporter of military expertise, uh, in the past, it, there, there, was, there were many other more civilian branches of expertise, and now it is very clear that this is military. And uh, the same strata, or the same class of people that benefit directly from this situation are those, I mean, the, the military are those who are regarded the experts, the objective experts, who say that we have to perpetuate the situation of occupation, etc. Only once they are out of it and they become civilians, still civilians, bec they become civilians and they're very important in the politics or economy, do they start talking about uh, how dangerous the, the, the situation is. But as long as they are in, in, in uniforms, they are, uh, they don't, uh, they uh, actually propagate the continuation of the situation of security and that uh, there is danger if we, there is a Palestinian state and there is danger from this and there is danger from there. Um, yes, that's exactly what, uh, I mean, the answer was already in your question. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if, Adam, 
the opening night of Marxism 2015, you said that you're not an objective journalist and I was wondering if you could explain to people what that means. Um, I think that the idea of objectivity in journalism is overrated. Uh, We are all the products of our history, of our opinions, or of our uh, uh, way of thinking, of our ideologies. Uh, We cannot dissociate ourselves from them. when we, write, when we ask questions, when we choose what to write and what not to write, even if it's not conscious, it is a product of our uh, thinking, way of thinking. If I have five hours a day to work on a, a subject or eight hours a day, and I have two subjects to, to, to choose between, I cannot work on both, the very choice is, is, is not objective. It's, uh, so... People mix objectivity with accuracy, with uh, honesty, with fairness. No. Uh, And I do have my opinions, and I'm against the occupation, and I'm against uh, repression. So when I write about uh, matters of occupation or aspects of occupation, I'm from the start. I want my readers to know that I'm against it. On the contrary, I think that those who hide their opinions uh, are uh, those – they are cheating the, the readers not us to say that we are not objective. Um, objectivity also has become, uh, in, in jargon, like um, um, neutrality. And when you are neutral vis-a-vis power, it's, it means that you are with power, with the stronger party against the weaker party, or with the oppressor against the oppressed. This is so obvious. So neutrality is a very... is a. Uh, um, is a very um, position okay. compromised compromised position and and uh, yes but it's also very non objective uh, position mm. neutrality yeah i couldn't agree false, more yeah <laughs> it's ideological yeah, yeah. very false yeah, yeah false yeah. objectivity yeah false um, yeah. I, I was really quite interested in um, having followed some of the issues in israel uh, about um, the management of information uh, the state is incredibly uh, onto uh, controlling the message that's coming out of Israel and also particularly after they have uh, attacks on, say, Gaza or those sorts of things where quite horrendous things happen but they uh, refuse to allow reports to actually be uh, released or even personal um, stories from people who have been involved being released. How, how is it possible for you to actually uh, get your information across? I actually disagree with this description of the reality. I think it's very easy to, 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 to uh, release information from Israel. Very, very easy. Uh, we don't, uh, we journalists do not face many problems writing about. You can see Haaretz has very, very subversive information, not necessarily military, but very subversive information, which, uh, which shows clearly what the Israeli aims are vis-a-vis the Palestinians in the occupied territory or in Israel proper. I really, and also about the, the last war, there was, uh, there was no real... Uh, foreign journalists could enter, they could write, they could publish, they could uh, file reports, also tele- 
on television. So this is not the case. The case in Israel is, is, is very different. It's the Israeli readers who don't want to know. So this is what the real censorship is. I say I have almost full and full freedom of expression. And I can, I can exercise my right for freedom of information uh, uh, fully. It's the p- problem is that the people do not have the duty to know. I have all the means to let them know. They don't have the duty to know. I was wondering, given that Australia is one of the biggest backers of Israel as well, was that one of the reasons you decided to come to Marxism in Australia? Look, I was invited, so it was a very uh, uh, tempting invitation, and uh, uh, I felt very flattered that I'm invited to Marxism conference. Uh, I know the similar, the kind of twin group or whatever sister group that you, uh, in in the states, and I participated in one of their conferences some years ago. It was an opportunity for me to come to see a part of the world that I didn't know so far. That's what I say. I usually say that I'm, I profit also from the occupation, you see. Otherwise, I wouldn't have, uh, tra- it wouldn't have been uh, so easy to travel here. And I also come, and I, whenever I come I, to, to such places like the States, Canada, South America, now Australia, I try to use the time also to learn about the aboriginals, the indigenous uh, of uh, and the genocides and the, the try to learn the similarities and the, the, the differences between, between the um, Israeli policies and your policies. And so this is very important for me. There is a very uh, clear uh, connection too, isn't there? Because the, uh, the lie in Australia has always was terra nullius. And exactly yeah. the same was yeah. Uh, yeah. portrayed in Palestine, wasn't it? There was, though, when you read even uh, uh, when you read the um, ideologies of of Zionism, when you read them carefully, they knew very well from the start that it was a, 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 an empty land. So, yeah, people quote very much the first sentence that a people without uh, land to a land without people. But once they got here, and uh, also the writings of the big ideologists, even uh, Jabotinsky and Herzl, uh, they were very well aware that there is a people, another people living here, and they had all kinds of fantasies about them, but uh, I think it's also another wrong image that, uh, that, uh, about the place. There was much more knowledge about Palestine than there was knowledge about Australia. You're on uh, Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and... Kim. Yes, right. And I'm really sorry that we're a little bit over the time for leading into rank and file, but uh, we've just been listening to our little conversation with uh, Amira Huss. You've got to admit, uh, she, as a pro-Palestinian Israeli journalist, come here for the 2015 Marxist conference, was a real treat. Yes, and just a lovely voice and a, an inspiring person, I think. I think so too. So we'll move on to Marcus, Marcus Harrington's Rank and File, and apologies for being slightly late. On today's edition of Rank and File Radio, I'm joined on the line by a veteran unionist, a militant construction and maritime worker, and a tireless fighter for the rights of this nation's first people, uh, Davy Thomas, and joins me. Welcome to the program, Davy. Uh, well, welcome, uh, Marcus. I- I'd like to acknowledge the land I'm, I'm uh, 
I'm phoning you from the Wotherong people's land here, the traditional owners of the land on Wotherong, Wotherong country. Okay, and this morning we're uh, broadcasting from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Of course, we should acknowledge that it is stolen land. Okay, as an active member of the trade union movement over many decades, uh, not just in Australia but internationally, uh, could you firstly introduce yourself to the listeners, Davey? My name is Davy Thomason. I'm uh, I'm a, a Shetland Islander. Uh, my uh, my people are the Vikings. Uh, I am also connected to the to the, the the Picts. My on my my dad's mum's side, and I also acknowledge my Scots. Uh, my the Scots who come to uh, to Shetland as well on on my Tullock side. Okay. Uh, so I'm. I'm. Uh, my my people have been in Shetland for for a long, long time. You know, before even before the Viking come, which was 1,300 years ago. Okay. Uh, I I'm a, a dad of uh, of two Naranjiri boys. Nar- the Naranjiri people are from the Kurong. My my wife is from the Rokan, the the mission, the concentration camp. That was a concentration camp on the on the, on the Naranjiri land. So uh, uh, you know, I, my on my Naranjiri side, my boys said they go back forty, fifty thousand years. The Naranjiri nation have been on that land. I'm yep. I'm, I'm also uh, 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 my uh, my dad was a communist. So I was brought up in a communist family okay. from from a, a real early, you know, from a well, from a from a, from a baby, you know, man. Okay, it was your father who was a, a seafarer, and you followed in his footsteps, correct? Yeah, yeah. My 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 dad my dad went to the fishing when he was thirteen, and he uh, he went to sea in uh, nineteen twenty five. Dad went to sea, but ninety years ago, my dad joined the National Union of Seamen. Okay. I've got his discharge book, so I mean that's he, he joined the National Union Seamen on the twentieth of January, uh, nineteen twenty-five, and that that the reason that uh, that uh, date sticks in my head is because it also is the date that we acknowledge the first first public hanging in, in Victoria, which was the twentieth of January. Yeah, it was, uh, so it, it really stuck in my my head died, you know. Okay, it was of course Tanaminawaya and Morboyhina who were executed yes. at the RMIT University uh, site and there's been a long campaign to have that hanging uh, publicly recognised with a monument. Yes, and that, that'll, be, that'll be put in place this year, you know what I mean? Uh, at, the, at, the, at the gates of the old Melbourne jail there where them two warriors from, from Tasmania were. Uh, they, they had a guerrilla campaign up the Daninongs where they never they never killed anybody, but they burned people out of the Dandenongs for three months. Yep. And they were publicly hung uh, on that day, you know. And, this, and my dad joined the union in 90 years ago, you know, my late dad. Okay. And well, we're talking about maritime workers. It was this time, 17 years ago, 1998, when uh, Patrick's uh, had sacked its entire unionised workforce in uh, Melbourne. Exactly. That, that's that, that's uh, not too long ago. You know what I mean? And uh, the peaceful assembly at Web Dock. I just uh, found me uh, me T-shirt uh, that was was uh, given to me. I, I actually uh, 
flew to uh, my my mom was eighty on that. I I was in the air flying to uh, back home to Shetland uh, when that happened, and uh, okay. I'd been involved as a as a seaman on on picket lines, you know, on uh, for anti-apartheid picket lines as a seaman, you know, uh, from when I was on board ships. Okay. Uh, I I also took part in the with the with the Seamen's Union at the the Norse strike back in uh, I think that was eighty two okay. you know when when the Norses went and strike we, we we used to we used to divide the ship in half half the crew would go ashore and join the picket line up in the Royal Melbourne Hospital uh, when we were in uh, when we were in Melbourne I, I was at uh, on a, on a tanker at the time the okay. Mobile Australis. You know what I mean? And I can remember going and standing on the picket line with uh, with the nurses. Okay. Uh, and also we we used to uh, do the picket lines for the against the apartheid when 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 basically the Siemens Union and the Warfies, uh drove Sapphos and Marine away from and, and Nelson Mandela acknowledged that you know when he, uh, that it was the Siemens Union and the, and the National Union of Seamen as well. Back uh, that that actually stopped the, the all, all the oil getting to South Africa. They put put an embargo on all the oil t- tankers going to, and that was one of the most successful campaigns. You know what I mean? Okay, if we can go back to the seventies uh, when you were a BLF organizer under Jack Mundy in the time of the Green Bands, Davy. Yeah, well, that was. Uh, I mean, I, I was so lucky. I I, I jump ship in Brisbane. I'm a, I'm a jump seaman. Okay. Uh, like many, most of the term uh, rigger comes from a ship, and uh, when when I jump ship, most most riggers uh, in the uh, where, where you went were were all jump seamen, and I was one of them. Uh, okay. my, my 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 I followed a, a family uh, trait. My my dad jumped when he was twenty one in Vancouver and in, in in Canada, and I jumped when I was twenty one, and in, in, uh, I jumped uh, in Brisbane, and I flew to Sydney, and. Uh, uh, I was a painter and docker for the time. That okay. was my first. Uh, I was a, a docky, and uh, and then I became a a, a regular on the on the opera house. My first, uh, and that's when I met Jack Mundy. I met Jack Mundy uh, when I was on the opera house, and uh, and then I became a delegate on the Sydney Hilton, and uh, and it all really. Uh, uh, they they asked me Bobby Pringle, the late Bobby Pringle, the president, asked me to become an organizer and I, I, for a time in 1972 I was the youngest organizer in uh, in the New South Wales branch I'm, I'm also a, a life member of that branch uh, that was given to me in by uh, pinned on my, uh, my on my chest by uh, uh, the last really elected uh, uh, secretary uh, the late Jones okay. and Jack Mundy they, they, they pinned it on me uh, on my chest that uh, at a uh, commemoration of the of the battlers from Kelly's Bush, the 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 upper middle class women who had protected the the uh, Kelly's Bush on the on in Hunter's Hill, you know, the, which was the first recognised green ban in the world, you know what I mean? That okay. was, you know, that, that inspired everybody, you know. Okay, and just before you mentioned the Sydney Opera House, and of course there was a famous campaign on that site which saw the workers place the construction of that uh, building under workers' control when they effectively uh, sacked the management. Well, the the first, uh, that was the one, first one, that's the one. The, the, the inspiration come from the Upper Clyde shipyards. 
from Jimmy Reid, the communist, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, convener of the the Upper Clyde shipyards. When 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 the workers were sacked, they refused to take the sack, and they occupied for nine months. Okay. And that inspired us all over the world. That inspired us. And the first that I can remember was uh, on the circular stage of the of the of the Opera House. The workers there, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, were. Uh, were sacked because they were uh, the metal workers there, uh, who, who were uh, constructing the, the revolving stage in the in the opera hall and the and the concert hall because there's two there's two you know revolving stages. Okay. And uh, they occupied uh, when when the when Hornibrook Hornibrook was the builder there Hornibrook, and uh, they they occupied and uh, and so. And the next uh, work in was, uh, and I just picked uh, up the, the the article from the I'd cut out of the Tribune at the time, the communist newspaper, where uh, it was written by the late great Tommy Hogan, okay. uh, organizer for the for the Builders' Labors, who's basically just finished. Uh, I went to his memorial uh, maybe a couple of maybe three four weeks ago. Okay. Uh, Tommy 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 died. Tommy Hogan. Uh, and he he uh, he wrote an article, and it was uh, uh, basically we sacked the bosses. They sacked us, and uh, we sacked we sacked them. I was the delegate on the on the Sydney Hilton, and uh, we occupied, and they they begged uh, for their uh, positions back the 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 foreman. But we, uh, I think the first the first work in we had was four days. And then we had a second one on that uh, job where we uh, basically used uh, we used breaking the concrete pours as a, as a as a weapon, and they were as uh, they was they were as uh, uh, effective as using bombs. We basically uh, picked the ramps on the on the car parks, and we uh, stopped. Uh, as a delegate, I walked from George Street to to Pitt Street, and okay. we used to have we used to line up maybe fifteen concrete. Uh, uh, trucks on one side and the same on the other, and then I'd call a meeting in the middle of it. And uh, basically, the concrete was uh, w- was going off, and uh, the foreman tried to to form it up, but they couldn't do it. So we did the, everything had to be jackhammered out. It was basically the same as using. I mean, it was effective as using uh, using dynamite. You know what I mean? Okay. If we can go back to the uh, green band period, um, could you explain to the listeners what the placing of a, a green band uh, was? Well, I, I, I can remember what I said that night as I was walking down to the branch meeting because it was going to be debated at our, and all branch meetings, yep. and I'll tell the workers now, all branch meetings were six, 700 every month. Uh, the last... Uh, uh, Wednesday of the month is uh, is in uh, is the one in the CMU here. Okay. I think it might have been the same in in uh, Sydney. The last Wednesday or Tuesday of the month, you know what I mean. And uh, we had uh, we had the main hall in the tra- uh, Sydney tra- uh, Sydney uh, uh, Trades and Labour Council. We'd have the main, and we had six, seven at every branch meeting. I mean, it was uh, it was the biggest uh, debate and and. Uh, and opposition, because we had uh, we had uh, we had what uh, Gallagher's were, were they were the Marxist Leninists. We okay. were in the, the Communist Party CPA, okay. and there was Socialist Party uh, members there who were we called the Moscow Leninists. The Moscow Leninists 
the 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 Peking liners and and we were uh, the Communist Party. We were independent of both Moscow and and uh, and uh, and China. You know what I mean? Even though we are inspired by what happened in obviously the Communist Party here was formed that just after you know the the revolution in okay. in, uh, in the so- Soviet Union and uh, also we're in, I've always been inspired by Mao. You know what I mean? Okay. But uh, we had debates, huge debates, and I can remember what I and I, I want to uh, just remind uh, uh, workers and people who listen to 3CR that uh, to protect the environment, we got to unite with all different classes. Because I can remember my my statement as I walked down from the Hilton Hotel as I was walking down towards the and this is what I said. I said, "What the fucking hell are we got to do with them upper middle class women in the North Shore?" And that's what it, that was the that was my mindset when I when I went into the branch meeting. Okay. And it was Jack Mundy who pulled us all on the line. He said, "We work eight hours, ten hours, twelve hours a day on our workplace. We try to get the safe safest workplace in the world. And what we got to do is we got to have a clean environment." And it was Jack Mundy's foresight that actually uh, and changed my mind because it was the greatest step that workers took was putting. They're, they're uh, put, putting the environment before the jobs because it inspired a worldwide uh, uh, movement. Petra okay. Kelly, the, fo- the founder member of the German Greens, the biggest Green Party in the world, Petra Kelly said when, when she heard what happened, and it gave her the idea of uniting workers with uh, with, with uh, uh, people who were protecting the going for the protection of the environment. And that, that's what happened. And the links we had with uh, with the Redfern was was um, with the Redfern uh, uh, Curie community. Okay. Bob Belair, uh, uh Gary Foley. Gary Foley was a BL. He was a BL at the time. That all linked in with it because if we don't protect the environment, if we don't support First Nations people here, we are destroying the environment. That is our main link with the environment is protecting and walking in solidarity with First Nations warriors here. And you've been listening to Rank and File Radio on 3CR 855 AM. Tune in next week for part two of the interview with Davey Thomas. And I've been the presenter of the program, Marcus Harrington. You're listening to Radio 3CR and I am Associate Professor in History, Claire Wright. And you're back in the studio with Annie and Kim. And we've got a few events, haven't we, Kim? Yes, yes, we do. Do you want to go first? I think yours are a bit Yeah, soon. yeah. Well, there's a, a film called Frackman. It tells the story of accidental activist Dane Patsky and his struggle against international gas companies. He's part of the Lock the Gate campaign. And as you might have heard in the earlier part of the show, it's quite clear that Lock the Lock the Gate campaign, which is basically, in lots of ways, uh, the left in the um, guise of Friends of the Earth and people of that nature, lending their experience to a more conservative group of people in uh, the Australian population as they defend themselves against large corporations. This is a major, major development in uh, the uh, political landscape of Australia. Anyway, if you want to know more about the inside story, you should be going to see Frackman. It's going to be shown at uh, the Nova at 6.30pm on Wednesday, the 22nd of April. And, of course, it is a fundraiser, so they'd love you to go there, not just to be 
educated and informed and uh, wallow in the uh, immensity of a good documentary uh, about something that is actually happening in real time in your own state. So uh, if you go down there to Nova, Wednesday the 22nd of April, 6.30pm, you can do advanced booking. I'll do this slowly so that you can, and I'll do it twice. So it's www.tuggtug.com forward slash events forward slash 15247. That's com forward slash events forward slash 152447. Uh, but you can also just go down there. That's 6.30pm Nova, Wednesday the 22nd of April. If you want to know more about it, fracmanthemovie.com will get you that information. I've got some more. I've got lots of them. I've got things about um, these machines cut razor wire, 2015, music fundraiser for the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Now, you know, of course, that uh, these cuts, these machines cut razor wire are a very nice uh, reference back to Woody Guthrie with his wonderful guitar. This machine, this machine kills fascists. <laughs> Jeff Lang, Kavesha, Masala, Les Thomas Band, Little Feet, they're all going to be there at the Ding Dong Lounge, 16, no, it's 18 Market Lane, Melbourne, the Ding Dong Lounge. The Market Lane's just up at the top of uh, uh, Collins Street. So uh, it's Cajun Creole Cuisine will be available. That's at 6pm Sunday the 26th of April. So uh, you you could have um, a very nicely arranged week if you... uh, decided to go to those two events. If you want to know more information about the uh, fundraiser for the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, then 03 9514 That's 9514 And uh, Les Thomas is organising this event. A very, very nice fellow, I'll have to say. Now we're moving on to This Is The Week That Was. A week solidarity, Bricky Team Listener, when as we celebrated one of our great religious events, the opening of the footy season, the big blockbuster game was a one-sided battle between the corporate cowboys and the injury-riddled tax tyros. Not only riddled with injuries, but short of replacements, having delisted thousands of key position players, a game in which point naught, 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 naught something percent is a massive winning score. Being a being the percentage technology technology giants, for instance, pay the tax tyros, but as giggle, so called because well it's obvious they giggle all the way too, via the tax tyro bypass, as giggle said, we are not opposed to paying tax, we are opposed to being uncompetitive. And how would you become uncompetitive? By paying tax. With that, the tech giants decided to giggle or Google this strange word, T-A-X. Nothing doesn't exist. Says there's no such thing. Hang on, try T-A-C-K-S. Let's see. Oh, that's ridiculous. Why would we want to give all sorts of sharp little pointed thingies to the government? 
The blockbuster promotion kicked off Monday when the Fairfax media happily reported its rival, Lord Rupert of Wapping's Empire, paid a crippling 4.8% tax on cash flows, or 10% on operating profits, by siphoning lots of money off to its New York parent. Well, Lord Rupert obviously feels a commitment to his US of the UN of the US of the world homeland, which became his homeland for the very purpose of improving his tax arrangements. So why attack poor Lord Rupert for achieving what he set out to achieve? And anyway, he's true blue Aussie big supremo brackets temporary, because with Lord Rupert they're all temporary. Julian Clock, the tax department, said Lord Rupert complied with true blue Aussie law. Well, they all do, which probably says something about true blue Aussie law, but more particularly, it's the least we would expect, because readers of Lord Rupert's news he wants us to get to get know he is a stickler for law and order. Lock him up and throw away the key. So the last thing he'd want to do is break the law himself. That was P1 in the Fairfax paper that morning, but Lord Rupert gave us the news he knew we wanted him to give us. Yet another exclusive expose of evil Islam, terrorism in our midst, Jihad Star Chamber screamed across P1 of the whopping sin. While inside, the usual suspect, Lord Rupert Lackey, columnist, said the mob who protested Saturday to get all Islams out of the country, preferably not breathing anymore, were just expressing their right to free speech. And how dare those long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden working and iron lefties deny them that free speech. He managed to mention, just by example, how his free speech had been curtailed by the biased, one-sided legal system which ruled against him just because what he wrote was totally untrue. How dare they attack my free speech right to tell lies? Wonder if that 4.8% took into account the millions Lord Rupert got back off the tax department when he sued them for wanting to tax him in the first place. Picture on P2 of the whopping scene, another terrorist atrocity, this eight-year-old girl holding a commemorative coin honouring train killing and terrorism. How dare the terrorists brainwash dear innocent little children? Oh, sorry, hang on, hang on, I've just read on. Oh, no, no, she's a true, true blue Aussie holding a coin to commemorate 100 years since Turkey knocked us off when we invaded them. The dear innocent eight-year-old is being educated in the values that forged this country. No brainwashing there. Can't make out what's on the coin, but, but surely it would be appropriate to have a true blue Aussie trained killer twisting a bayonet through the heart of a Turkish defender, and on the obverse, a Turkish defender twisting a bayonet through the heart of a true blue Aussie trained killer invader. And on both sides, looking down on the death scene, a baron of world industry rubbing his hands together and counting the profits all this is sending his way. They would have all been his in those days. Oh, and speaking of rubbing his hands as the profits flood in, Lord Rupert is providing a free collector's album for the coins, 14 different themes, and then readers can buy one of the 20-cent coins each day for a mere $3. That's only a 1,500% profit for Lord Rupert. Unless possibly 4.8% in tax, although hopefully the 1,500% will land in the USR very quickly and be tax-exempt. 
Then next morning in the blockbuster build-up, fail facts again. True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review this time, the big True Blue Aussie, of which we're all so proud, BHP for bloody huge profits, and Rio Tato, the profits, channel lots of their profits to Singapore, then to Switzerland and then to the Netherlands, all of which ends up costing them all of about 2.5% in tax. Poor dears. Bloody huge profits described this Thimble and Pea trick as our marketing organisation and said tax treatment had nothing to do with it. Obviously just an accidental little side benefit. There's obvious legal, uh, logical, I'm sorry, reasons why you'd sell cheap to yourself in Singapore, sell expensive, expensive to China, transfer profits to, well, its marketing organisation. Lord Rupert would be aghast that anyone would attempt to avoid paying tax in True Blue Aussie, or anywhere for that matter, although his papers didn't think any of that was worth reporting until Julian clocked the tax department lobbed before the Senate inquiry Wednesday and complained that on online rival media companies had an advantage because they avoided paying the GST. Poor Lord Rupert. The Wapping Sin finally mentioned the tax evasion, sorry, tax arrangements allegations through its giant economic guru Terry Pukan, who devoted a whole page to attacking the messenger, the Fairfax media and a commercial telechannel for suggesting it would ever dream of avoiding tax. The news pages did give a fair bit of coverage to other companies other than themselves avoiding tax. So, sorry, abiding by the letter of our tax laws. The big four world accounting firms who advise the law-abiding corporate giants about the letter of our tax laws then face the inquiry. In fact, last year the government commissioned price as high as possible what a house to advise it about the very tax arrangements price as high as was advising its clients to exploit. Uh, sorry, utilise or, or whatever. And in the inquiry we heard its spokesperson have an oops, that's not what I meant moment when she mused on when we make the laws. Uh, I mean when, well, these inquiries love a bit of honesty. And anyway, hands up anyone who thinks the inquiry will lead to all this lot actually paying tax. After all, that would obviously be not abiding by the letter of our tax laws, given that not paying tax is law-abiding. The law-abiding good corporate citizens made a compelling case for not being harassed by this parliamentary waste of time. Collectively, Lord Rupert spoke for them, we constitute a very small percentage of the population. Clearly, in a democratic free society, the majority has a greater responsibility to the minority, the, the mass of lazy, avaricious workers, of the unemployed, the, the pensioners, the disabled, the, the homeless might I say through no fault of the minority, the, the sick, the uneducated, these people have a responsibility to compensate for both revenue shortfalls and necessary cuts in government spending. They cannot expect us to bear the full burden. We, we cannot live beyond our means, and these people must accept that social responsibility while recognising that the era of entitlement is over. Uh, but Lord Rupert, your whopping sin in particular posits itself as the defender of the little person, the average battler. You hate injustice. Certainly, and nothing I have said changes that. I am the strongest supporter of little people. After all, I'm not that tall myself. 
Early in the week, Lord Rupert's Wapping Sin did cover matters of tax. The sundry chambers of profits telling us tax is killing them and must be reduced and retirees, whom Lord Rupert cares so much about, could be forced onto the pension if they lose tax credits on dividends. Just incidentally, that could also affect poor Lord Rupert himself and the law-abiding shareholders of bloody huge profits and Rio Tato the profits and the big four accounting firms and their mates. An accidental little side disbenefit in this case. On that tax imputation, tax credit bit, this economic giant mine from the Lowy that Low Institute says the answer isn't to remove it and tax the poor shareholders, but to extend it to the overseas shareholders of the great corporates who don't pay any tax in the first place. My word, we've got to admire the capacity of lateral thinking by these people, haven't we? The homeless, the unemployed, the destitute must be breathing a sigh of relief that they'll continue not to pay tax on their share dividends, their windfalls. Finally, the government also brought out a new white paper on energy policy explaining the cause of our skyrocketing utility bills. Nothing to do with privatised companies maximising profit. No, it's down solely to all these long-haired commie greenies stopping those great benefits to the economy, mining and exploration and coal seam gas exploitation and fracking and on addressing climate change, which may or may not be climate change, it says... Hang on, no, no, not there. It doesn't mention it there. Look, look, if I find it, I'll... I'll let you know next week, listener, but, but seriously, we have to congratulate the government for releasing a report on climate change which succeeds in totally ignoring climate change. It would have been a waste of time, Fossil Minister Ian McFarting explained. The report is looking 40 years ahead, and under our policies, the planet won't even be here. Well, yeah, when they put it that way, it makes sense. Good morning. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on... What's that frequency again, dear? 855. I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. Yeah, you're on 3CR and you're in the Solidarity Studio. Solidarity uh, Breakfast with Annie and Kim. And on the line, we've got Noah Pasil, Dr. Noah Pasil from Macquarie University. G'day, Noah. How are you? Good, thank you. Yep. And you're awake? I am well, well awake, yes. Is it raining there? Sometime, and I've been reading a bit about Yemen. Oh, good on you, because that's what we want to talk about, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah, we're, uh, and Kim's in the studio, and we've been uh, looking at uh, what's going on over in the Middle East and then dripping down into parts of Africa. Um, are they related? Is what's going on in Yemen, in Kenya, in Tunisia and Libya, are they connected? Uh, in my view, they are. Uh, a lot of people would say they're not. I mean, there are a number of connections, I think, um, and I think... The connections go back some time, and that is they're connected to the to the sort of dysfunctional nature of the of the um, state and uh, society, economic state society um, that emerged after colonialism. Uh, most of those states are not don't really have any logic except the logic of the colonial. Um, 
powers back in 1885 when they divided up countries or, or areas into countries or um, colonial states that they wanted to, to maintain control over. And in fact, as uh, you know, people who work on Africa will tell you, those borders were drawn, mainly drawn, um, at a meeting in Berlin in 1885. Uh, no Africans were present, of course, so there's no representation from anyone on the continent about where the boundaries and the and the um, and the centres of power uh, of these colonial states should reside. And uh, I think a lot of what's happening now in Africa can be traced back to that that period and the way that society was transformed by the colonial state. Um, you know, there's a lot of work on this. My own book on the Sudan is very much based on how the emergence of the colonial state really uh, created huge imbalances of power and um, inequities and a whole range of other factors that have been responsible for huge uh, tensions and, in many cases, conflicts in Africa. Is it the case, Noah, that actually the colonial powers used and tried to whip up sectarianism and violence to keep the populations down? Has that had an effect in those regions? Absolutely. I mean, the most obvious example of that was Rwanda, where the Belgians uh, took a, uh, a, a very racist uh, position on the, on the two groups that lived in Rwanda, and people, who, anthropologists in particular, who studied identity in Rwanda found that, in fact, uh, Hutu and Tutsi weren't ethnic or sort of um, um, uh, sort of tribal identities prior to the Belgian occupation. In fact, they were more socio-economic identities. That is, uh, people who who had ownership of land and um, were sort of seen as a de facto aristocracy were were called Tutsis, and those who um, those who didn't and were sort of uh, more transient were seen as um, Hutus. And what the Belgians did was they um, enforced those. And prior to the Belgian and occupation or colonialism, those identities were very fluid. That is, people married up or down or their wealth changed and they, they were very much like class identities. Uh, there wasn't a huge amount of social mobility, according to some of the anthropologists who have studied Rwanda, but there was some. Uh, they weren't hardened identities in the way that they became under the Belgians who issued citizen cards and identities and forced Hutus and Tutsis into different ethnic categories. And they gave the Tutsis uh, privileges over the Hutus that had never existed before. And that's where a lot of that tension between Hutus and Tutsis arose uh, um, in Rwanda. And the you know long-term effect of that was the was the uh, horrific events in 1994. If we go to Tunisia in this uh, last round of uh, uh, violence, well, in Tunisia what you had was an attack on, uh, well, the majority of dead were uh, Western tourists at uh, at a major tourist attraction, a museum. Now, of course, Tunisia... Was the is is called the uh, 
beginnings of the Arab Spring. Yeah. Can you uh, talk to... Oh, and, and also at the same time, almost at exactly the same time as this uh, uh, assault, was a major uh, conf- uh, conflagration of uh, a big, big conference of uh, international people around uh, um, progressive leftist uh, um, movements in in the world uh, were meeting in Tunisia at the same time. Is, is there any uh, what's going on there? Why why was that? What 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 was happening there? Well, I mean, Tunisia is an, is very interesting, and it's the really the one case of the post Arab uprisings that has seen a glimmer of some um, optimism about the potential transformation. Uh, from authoritarian to more representative government. I don't really want to use the word democratic because that's overused and under uh, misunderstood, I think. Uh, and the only form of democracy that is sort of widely used is the sort of Western uh, parliamentary system, which, I, I mean, I would have to say is far better than the authoritarian model that has uh, long been established in the Middle East, long, I mean, since the end of colonialism. Um, but uh, it's still not the form of democracy that many in the Middle East envisaged when they went on the streets in 2000, late 2010 and 2011. Um, but Tunisia has proven to be a, a little more robust in its capacity to deal with change of government and, and some sort of formation of a post-authoritarian order. Um, and, but I think that there's also a great, there's still a, a deep cleavage in the society between um, Islamists and and sort of majority secular, um, polit- sort of pol- political and social um, movements, and that I think is part of what happened in Tunisia. Um, and you know, this is a that's a regional phenomenon. It's not unique to Tunisia in any way. Uh, We have seen with the rise of Islamic State in Syria and Iraq a sense that there is a new model of government and uh, social uh, organisation that many people in the Middle East, some people in the Middle East think would be superior to their current very sort of unfair um, systems that, that um, most states have. So I think there's the, the sense that what Middle Eastern states or people um, have had to endure for many years has been unsuccessful and, and doesn't really hold much hope of the sort of prosperous and, and, um, and positive societies that people want. And so they're clutching for alternative models and the and for some people who are desperate or or dogmatic, uh, the Islamic State uh, model seems to be one that they're willing to fight for. I had um, two questions. One related specifically to Tunisia. I was wondering if the fact that there is more of a kind of Islamist divide in Tunisia might be because, well, Ben Ali kind of oppressed. He was an uh, equal opportunist uh, oppressor. And so everyone that I suppose encouraged everyone to rise up against him collectively, maybe the ruling class in Tunisia has learnt a lesson and is trying to be more divisive. 
Um, my other question, I suppose, is do you think that the fact that other Middle Eastern regimes were um, and African, uh, North African regimes were unwilling to give reforms is linked to you know, neoliberalism? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the only reforms that have really... I mean, can I ask, answer the second question? Well, which is inevitable. If you ask two questions, the second one will be the one answer. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> um, the, the only reforms that most Middle Eastern societies have had in the last decade or two have been the neoliberal ones. Um, you know, and, and there's been this sort of uh, uh, attempt to uh, justify neoliberalism um, as... The, the sort of opening up of these societies. So Mubarak, for example, and the Mubarak regime in Egypt, uh, you know, sold off state companies, uh, forced state employees onto uh, into sort of outsourced or privatised companies, uh, removed subsidies on some goods, did all the things that good neoliberal states do, um, and all in the name of free, you know freedom and ju- liberty and but at the same time, he was um, that that same government was um, increasing the level of repression on on free speech and and uh, political um, and uh, political activity. Except, I would say, and this is one of the irony. Well, so now to answer your first question, I think what we've seen in the many parts of the Middle East over the last twenty or thirty years is a sort of real opportunism around Islamist uh, um, movements. And that is, uh, Tunisia is a good example of where Ben Ali uh, fated Islamists in the 1990s, late 1990s, and and for a number of years in the early part of last decade, uh, in an attempt to weaken the rising leftist opposition to his government and especially to the trade unions. But then once that had been achieved, he cracked down on the Islamists again. And so, uh, you know, I think we've seen in a number of cases, Egypt was another, where Mubarak brought the Islamists into into government. Uh, he gave them um, a sort of uh, uh, privileges in uh, setting up uh, programs on the state television and, and uh, sort of himself becoming more Islamically oriented in his of speech and his um, and his uh, and his, the sort of policies that he would allow, including economic ones that have freed up a lot of space for Islamist uh, capital, Islamic capital to um, uh, to, to, to sort of uh, move uh, more freely into areas that had once been dominated by a very small clique of uh, members of the aristocracy. He also allowed. Um, um, he also allowed uh, groups like the Muslim Brotherhood to maintain quite large charitable organisations around the country as well, and especially as the state removed itself from things like education and healthcare and welfare, uh, these Islamist movements moved in, um, or charities moved in. And so there was this double game being played for a long time in a lot of these states, um, by governments around the Islamists. And Ben Ali, in an interview uh, in 2003 and 2004, said, you know, this is just as he was cracking down on the Islamists, said uh, to a French, uh, in a French newspaper, that 
you know, the Islamists were partly of their making. They needed the Islamists to, to counter the communists and the socialists that were quite strong in places like the universities and the trade unions. Um, so, you know, he admitted that. And I think a lot of people who work in this area would agree that governments have been very, very Machiavellian in the way that they've used Islamist governments both to sort of weaken the left and any progressive movements, uh, but at the same time to sell the idea of Islamist uh, terrorism or, or the danger of Islamist takeover to the West to maintain their own um, uh, sort of authoritarian support for authoritarianism. Uh, that, you know, that's one of the problems that in that we're seeing now at the moment is that uh, these Islamist movements, whether it be ISIS or um, um, Al-Qaeda in uh, North Africa, they have some connections to people in government and the ruling elite. And so they are opposition, but they're also partly embraced by people who are in power. So it's a really strange uh, sort of um, um, and very complex uh, dynamic at work there. So they're really like a tool. Yeah, I, I would say in many cases they have been. I mean, ISIS is a tool of the Saudis and the Qataris and others who... Have, who you know have said that they want to their first their first priority is to overthrow the Syrian regime. Mm. Um, um, oh, just just let our listeners know that they're on Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, we're talking to Dr. Noah Basil from the Macquarie University. And what we're talking about is what's going on in uh, places like Tunisia. Uh, Libya, Yemen, and uh, I just wanted to, I mean, I know it's the way the human mind works to think that there's coincidence involved or maybe a greater connection than there maybe there is, but the timing of these attacks in uh, Yemen, Tunisia, and the ongoing business in Libya, as well as now the thing in Kenya, are those groups aligned in some way? Are we um, to I believe so? so? I mean, I think... I think they share some, I mean, they clearly share ideological connections um, and they see themselves now, I think, as a part of a sort of region-wide um, um, sort of vanguard. But I don't think, uh, I mean, there's not much evidence that they're closely connected in the way that, say, um, you know, possibly... Um, Al-Qaeda in uh, Iraq and the Al-Qaeda leadership were back in 2005 for that short period of time where they actually saw themselves as one movement. I don't think that's happened here. What has partly happened, especially in Libya and Tunisia and in Iraq, is that uh, some of the fighters, some of the jihadists are being trained in the Syrian-Iraqi conflict and then going elsewhere to use the skills and the knowledge they've gained um, as part of a new front in the same conflict. So, I mean, there is that element of it. And that's what happened after, uh, at the end of the Afghan uh, conflict after a decade of Western and, and mainly uh, uh, Saudi support for the Mujahideen fighting the Soviets. Uh, many of these people went back to their home countries trying to replicate the uh, sort of j jihad 
um, against their own what they saw as corrupt and um, and um, heretical leadership. Um, and to some extent, I think there's a little bit of that at work at the moment um, with Syria, Iraq being the hub of a new training uh, sort of system for uh, global jihadism. I uh, also had a question that I hope that you could um, answer for me. But this morning I heard apparently that uh, the Saudi uh, government re- requested that Pakistan send troops to Yemen, I believe, and Pakistan refused to. I was wondering if you could maybe tell me the significance of that. Well, the Saudis have decided that they're going to take leadership. And as le- as the leading country in the Gulf Cooperation Council, which is the sort of group that, that all the Gulf countries are a part of, um, and which is mainly a sort of economic um, um, multilateral organisation, uh, but it's also got a military um, or defensive element to it. Well, they've decided that they're going to go in and defend what has been deemed the UN-sanctioned government um, in Yemen. Um, now, the way that the Saudis, and I think you know, we've seen this over the last uh, decade or two, what has largely happened is that very complex conflicts around power, uh, access to resources, um, um, you know, regional inequalities and a whole range of issues have now been largely reclassified and characterised as sectarian conflicts. And Yemen, which is a country that has for a long time had a deep divide between the north and the south and was only unified in 1994 or 5 from memory, um, uh, has seen a a sort of north-south civil war break out again in more recent times. But uh, the north is largely sort of Shia, and the South is largely Sunni. And so it, the uh, immediate tendency of people is to see it as a sectarian conflict. Now, certainly that's an element of it. Uh, no doubt people's identities play a part in the, the fighting. But there's also an ideological and a regional element to this um, that goes well beyond, um, well beyond uh, just sectarianism. But because of the nature of Middle East conflicts these days, and particularly the support that comes from Saudi Arabia and Iran for either Sunni or or Shia um, movements. We've seen a real sectarian sectarianism, I think, develop in more recent years. And Pakistan has been asked as a, a country that has largely supported Saudi efforts in the past. They were one of the major contributors to the Mujahideen uh, struggle against the Soviets in the 1980s. Um, And as we know, they've also played a very tricky double game with the Taliban in uh, Afghanistan since uh, since, uh, the US occupation, or actually probably probably before that. Um, And that has a lot to do with Pakistan's own uh, sort of identity as Islamic State and, a, you know, very complex politics in that country as well, which I only know very superficially. But the one thing I have read is that Pakistan, whilst a majority Sunni country, has a sizable, sizable minority of Shia in the country. And 
I think the hesitancy amongst the Pakistanis to join a sectarian conflict in uh, Yemen is that it could provoke sectarian tensions in their own country, which is a very unstable one to begin with. And, uh, you know, the, that's the sense I get from the little that I've read about Pakistan and, um, and the Saudi approach uh, for assistance. Um, we're coming. Uh, we're coming to the end of uh, our time, Noah. Uh, it goes but so quickly. it goes so quickly. But um, and I know this is a little bit left field. But there's been. I mean, people will have know will know that there's been a major, uh, apparently major step forward in the uh, um, <clears throat> negotiations between uh, America and uh, Iran uh, in relation to the. Uh, nuclear situation which then impinges on the uh, the uh, embargoes that have been put on Iran and uh, there were major celebrations in Iran itself around mm-hmm. these negotiations uh, which they see as successful but the mainstream media in general uh, internationally have been saying yes, yes, yes but you know we'll wait and see. Um, what do you, what's your opinion on this? Um, I think there are a lot of interests uh, trying to sabotage this deal um i don't for in especially in the u.s um you know and and israel iran needing an enemy like iran is very important for justifying continuing military and arms build-up which is a very profitable industry for large corporations in both both countries um, I mean, I was just talking about this the other day. The recent research done in the U.S. Um, indicates that seven, up to 70% or somewhere around 70% of all manufacturing jobs in the U.S. now has some relationship to the industri- military-industrial complex. Now, that's a huge figure that, you know, the manufacturing sector in the U.S. is almost entirely related to arms, the sale of arms and the build-up of arms um, and you know for all the for all the criticisms of Barack Obama I think the one thing he has tried one of the things he's tried to do is to reorient uh, US politics a little bit away from its reliance on and its its um, control by the military industrial complex I don't think he's had a huge amount of success but He's, that is one thing he's tried to do, and building bridges in uh, with Iran and uh, 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 removing troops from Iraq, you know, despite all the ongoing drone warfare and everything else that his government is involved in, were attempts to step back. And now maybe I'm reading him uh, far too generously, but that's the sense I get from looking at um, the way that he's tried to re- reorient, as I said, some spending and other priorities of the U.S. government away from the huge um, amount of money that's been invested in uh, military expenditure over the last decade and a, and a half, which of course feeds corporate profits, um, and that and you know that's why the Republicans, who large donations from these companies, um, are so keen to continue to see the the, the public. Um, expenditure on military arms in the U.S. So I think that's the backdrop for me okay. of what's going on between U.S. and Iran. Um, you know, my view is that we, the, 
the the absence of nuclear weapons in itself is a good thing. So if we can stop Iran from producing nuclear weapons, that's great. When I say we, I mean globally, um, Iranian people and others see uh, nuclear weapons in the same way as being, you know, ultimately a bad thing for us. But, you know, I support the Iranian um, capacity to to develop tech, techno, advanced technology because it's part of freeing themselves from the sort of uh, reliance on um, on Western science and and, um, and economic control. And you know, you, well, no, we'll have to finish it there. I'm afraid we're right at the right, end. At, uh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. It's I'm, fascinating, really. Yeah, it's actually fascinating. It wasn't because I didn't want to hear it further, but we no, have no, to I leave understand. it. There are other pe- other things to talk about, but a, a real pleasure this morning. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye. And yes, indeed, we have to get out of here. The uh, uh, Asia-Pacific currents are, are clamouring at the door. We'll go out with... Uh, you've just been listening to uh, Solidarity Breakfast. We've just had a chat with Dr Noah Basile from Macquarie University about what's going on in the Middle East. And bef- uh, we also featured uh, uh, Amira Hass, a uh, pro-Palestinian uh, Israeli uh, journalist who came for the uh, latest uh, socialist conference, uh, Marxist... 2015 that was recently held here. Okay, out we go. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.